Friends, open your Bibles if you have them, or let's open in His Word as we continue uh, in our study of the book of Romans. We're finishing up chapter 4 this morning. So Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25 is what we are taking a look at. And before we read the text, let's turn our hearts and our attentions, acknowledging Jesus said, apart from him we can do nothing. You ever really think through what those implications are? Do we kind of just assume we could go to his word and read it like any other piece of literature that we read and somehow understand it and fully comprehend it and fully get it? You know, Jesus didn't just utter those words for nothing, apart from him. So we are totally dependent, totally upon him, even for our understanding of his word. Lord God, we come before you embracing and acknowledging that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit, the spirit who will guide into all truth, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit who helps us and applies Christ to our lives. And so, Father, now we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able, one more time, I would ask you to stand as we read the word of God. So if you're able, please stand. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. And Paul wrote, and he's speaking about Abraham. If you remember the chapter, it's a case study of Abraham and his faith. So it says, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. That's Abraham's call. It's in and through him that salvation was to come. As, as, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for him alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord, given by the triune God of love, because he loves us. You may be seated. If I could make a quick observation, I love how Tim Keller calls today's society and culture, he calls it a post-everything culture. Is it postmodern? Is it post-secular? Is it post-Christian? And he just kind of goes, yes. It's all of the above. It's a post-everything, which almost means anything goes. But here's one observation that I would make that I think rings true, and I think it rings true almost across cultures, and that is our love for narrative and story. I mean, think about it. I asked my son, Joel, he's going to turn 30 soon, and I asked him to do something for me. You know all the Marvel movies? Okay? Now, this is kind of my OCD personality. I can't handle this. Iron Man 3 will be coming on, and I'll be like, oh, I should watch Iron Man 3. And I'm like, what happened in Iron Man 1 and 2? And then all of a sudden, you'll read Spider-Man. And which Spider-Man? Spider-Man 8? Spider-Man 6? Which one I have? So I said to him, I want to know the Marvel Universe. Put the movies in order for me to see them, one to a hundred. And even if it takes me, maybe I'll be 78 and still watching Iron Man 14 or something like that or whatever comes out. But I'm the kind of person that has to have 
a beginning, a middle, and an end. Everything's got to go in order. But we think about it, why do they do that? Other than the fact that they're smart and know how to make a lot of money. Okay, they do that because they're tapping into something we all have in common, and that is our love for story, our love for narrative. And so even though we're looking at a section from one of the Apostle Paul's letters, I want you to realize something. What we have here is the story of Jesus. The story of the gospel in a nutshell. Because we're going to focus, I'm going to kind of give with what I, I hope will be laser-like focus. Verse 25 is what we're going to focus on. And we're going to do that kind of for a reason. We've been talking, all of chapter 4 have been talking about the case study of Abraham's faith. And verses 18 to 24 in the text I, re, I read is basically doing that talking about what Abraham's faith was like. But this verse, verse 25, is kind of where I'm going to camp and focus on this morning. And why? Because it is a comprehensive statement of the entire gospel. You have a laser-like focus of the story of the gospel, the story that Bishop Leslie Newbigin called the true story of the whole world. And when you recognize that the purpose of the Bible is to give us the story of the gospel, not just a textbook, but a revelation of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that what we do, I spoke earlier in the service about our liturgy, what we are doing each and every Sunday in worship is we are rehearsing and reenacting the story of God's grace. Think about it for a second. What do we do as we work our way through worship? It begins with God's initiative. God has reached out and reached down to us, calling us to himself in worship. In a sense, he's confronting us with his glory, with his otherness, with his holiness. I appreciated how Jeremy was talking about the pantheistic nature of the religious systems there in London, in South Hall, London. Do you know what the Bible is all about? The Bible is about God is God and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. And the beginning of rehearsing the story of God's grace is God confronting us with the fact that He is the Lord and we answer to Him. He's not one of many. He's not your co-pilot. He is the Lord. And that immediately confronts us, and this is why we, we are rehearsing the story of the gospel. It immediately confronts us with our sin. We are confronted with the fact, like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm completely corrupt, I'm unholy. He's holy and I'm unholy. And so what do we do in worship? After we have praised God, we confess our sins. And we receive His grace. And then we confess our faith. And then you hear, not to just hear a lecture, but be transformed and renewed and changed by the living and active Word of God. God is doing something on your soul, on your heart this morning. He is meeting you and challenging you to deal with Him. This is not just a lecture. He is giving you His very Word to challenge you this morning. And then we leave after hearing the Word and hearing that through Christ we are under the favor of God we then receive what's called the benediction. And do you know what the word benediction means? The word benediction is a blessing. In Latin, it truly means the good word. So the benediction is not just a doxology where we praise God. It is God giving you his good word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. 
The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, a countenance that through Christ is a countenance of favor and give you peace and you absorb and you with hands open receive the good word in order to go out into the world to spread that good word, to share that good word. Because Abraham is the father of many nations and Jesus hasn't returned yet because he is still calling men and women and boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and people and language to himself. And that's why we proclaim it. That's why we suffer. That's why we do what we do. And so this morning, I want to give us this kind of summary statement, this laser-like focus into the summary of the gospel, which is given for us in verse 25. And it basically, simple outline. This is an e- If you're taking notes, this is very easy to take notes on. Because verse 25 basically says, who was delivered up for our trans- trespasses, there's the purpose of his death, and who was raised for our justification, the purpose of his resurrection. So, this shouldn't take long, right? Two-point sermon. The purpose of his death and the purpose of his resurrection. Look with me at verse 25. And <clears throat> even though it rains, doesn't take care of the allergies. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. So excuse me. But what we're doing, this is the true story of the whole world. Why did Jesus come and live and die and was raised again? Look with me at the first part of verse 25. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. And I want you to notice a couple of things here because we learn the purpose of Jesus' death. Now, I titled the sermon, I told you last week I don't like sermon titles. I stuck with it this time, came up with it Wednesday and stuck with it. Resurrection hope, okay? But you can't really understand and appreciate Jesus' resurrection if you don't understand the meaning and the significance of his death. They're like two sides of the same coin or two wings of an airplane. They're utterly inseparable. Now, notice the way the text is written. Who was delivered... So it's speaking of Jesus. Jesus was delivered up. Okay? Now think about this. If he was delivered, who was he delivered by? He was delivered by God the Father. God the Father is the agent of the action here. God the Father is the one who initiated the action. The word delivered literally means handed over. So if you think back to Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he was given his sermon, and he says... This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in other words, Jesus was delivered or handed over. God handed Jesus over to those who would kill him. Now I just want us to marinate in that for a second. Because I want you to think about this. God took the initiative to deliver his son so that he wouldn't lose you. And I want you to marinate in this for a second. How much do you think God the Father loved God the Son? I mean, I want you to think about the intertrinitarian relationships for a second. So before there was creation and before there was time, before there was let there be light, you had God, the one God in three persons, existing and relating to each other. And they were doing so harmoniously, deferring to each other. If you look at the simple proposition out of 1 John 4 that says God is love, what was the Trinity, what was their life like before creation? They were loving one another because that is the definition of God. God is love. And they were deferring to one another. 
Now, if you think about this, I want you to marinate in this. What did it cost the father to deliver up the son? See, this was the father's initiative. It was the father's action, and he did it for you. So I want, you to, I want to just challenge you to think about something for a second. If he did it for you, how loved are you? How loved are you? There's this little tiny verse in Jude. It's not every day I quote out of Jude. Poor Jude, along with guys like Nahum and Malachi, they get ignored and brushed over so often. I think we need to pay more attention to them. But there's this little verse in Jude that commands us. It's an imperative. It's a command. And it says, remain in the love of God. I think we struggle with that, and we actually keep God's love at arm's length. We like the fact that God loves us, and we're going to heaven when we die. We like that. But if we bring in his love and don't keep it at arm's length, what does that mean? It means we're no longer in control of our lives. And it means he can ask us anything because our lives become his. He died for us. He died for our trespasses. He gave his life out of love for us. And if we truly let his love in and bring it in close, that means he can ask anything of us. He can ask us to go to South Hall, London and live as missionaries. He can ask us, if we're not married, to not get married. He can ask us, if we're married, to stay married. He can ask us to love the person that to us is not only unlovable, but unlikable. He can ask us to give away our money. He can ask us anything he wants because he has purchased and bought our life with his very blood. He was delivered up and he loves us that much that our lives belong to him. And think about it. Why? The text says, for our sins. The purpose of his death, the reason he died, was for our trespasses, which means our trespasses must be pretty bad for it to take the death of Jesus to deal with them. We looked at the cost of God. Look at, how, look at the fact that our sins must be pretty awful, that the only thing that could save us was the death of God's Son. Jack Miller, who was the one who started World Harvest Mission, that's now called Surge, that Jeremy and Angel are going to go serve with. Jack Miller would often, and I've, I've given this quote before, but he would often stand up in front of large groups of people, because he was a missionary and a pastor himself, and he would speak. And he would have a group of people, and he would say to them, and he would kind of look at them, and he would say, cheer up. You are a whole lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> and he would let that sink in. And he'd go, really? Jesus was de delivered up for your trespasses. It took Jesus, the cost of the life of God's Son. You are a whole lot worse than you think you are. And then he would pause and he would stop again and he would go, cheer up. You are a whole lot more loved than you could ever dare imagine. All I know is don't you ever dare say you are worthless or you are not worthwhile. When the Son of God gave up his life for you, he did it for your trespasses. He did it. God would rather lose his son than to lose you. Which is why the prophet Zephaniah says the Lord your God is among you. He is mighty 
to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And then get this, he will rejoice over you with singing. Cheer up. You are more loved, more accepted, more forgiven, more delighted in, more exalted over, more danced over. God is more proud of you than you could ever imagine. How can we know that that's true? How do we know that that's true? Look at the second part of verse 25. Was raised to life for our justification. The purpose of death was for our sins. But what if Jesus stayed in the grave? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection were not true, if it did not really happen, if that which was at the end of history did not come into the middle of history, if that which is not future did not come into the present, you are still in your sins and you are to be more pitied than all mankind. But he was raised for your justification. Now think about it. He was raised for the purpose of securing this justification. The resurrection lays the base, basis for our being made right with God. Now I want you to think about it. We've been studying justification for the last several weeks. What is justification? And we've said justification is the declaration by God based on the sure and perfect evidence of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that you are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. There's therefore now no condemnation and you are declared righteous. That means you are just as loved, just as beautiful, just as devoted, just as accepted, just as approved. That means God, because you're clothed in Christ, God is as pleased with you as he is with Jesus. Now dare to let that soak in. Look at yourself in the mirror. Think about this. At Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit of God lighted on Jesus as a dove, and the heavens were rent open and torn open, and the voice of God, what did it say? It said, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. Now where are you if you're a Christian? You're attached to Christ. You're in Christ. You are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Now, if you are in Christ, everything true of Jesus is true of you. Do you want to know what your father is saying of you right now? He is saying, you are my son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And why? Now, how many of us feel that? Wake up every morning and go, yep, that's me. God's pleased with me. Uh Uh-huh, sure. Guarantee you that's not always my first feeling in the morning. How do we know that that's true? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. See, this is the definition of justification. And he was raised because what is the resurrection? The resurrection is God's vindication. It is God's divine yes on all the work of Jesus. Learn to connect the dots. The implication of the resurrection is that God can look at you and say, I rejoice over you with singing. You are my beauty. You are my treasure. You are the apple of my eye. I am proud of you. 
Now I can ask you to do anything. Go and serve me. Why? Because you can't mess it up. You can't lose. That's the kind of freedom you have. Oh, that we would dare to soak that in and believe that. Because that's the only, the rules will never change us. That is the only thing that will renew and transform and change us. See, if we already have that by virtue of Christ's resurrection, if Christ's resurrection is God's yes to our already being made right, then our heart has what it most needs and what it most longs for. See, our heart longs for that kind of approval. Our heart longs for that kind of acceptance. Our heart longs for that kind of beauty. Our heart longs for that kind of communion and connection and intimacy. That's the point of all the stories. As C.S. Lewis, and why do we resonate with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien? And why do we resonate with Disney movies and Marvel movies? Because as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would always talk about, those stories, small s, are pointing to the great story, capital S, where the one sacrificed for the many, where the one always gives his life on behalf of the other, where beauty always gives his life for the beast. That story points to the true story of the whole world. And you may be looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, yep, I'm the beast. That's not how God sees you. God looks at you, and if you're in Christ, he sees you as just as beautiful as a son. Just as obedient, just as loving, just as devoted. He sees you as his treasure. And how do we get this? Simple faith. Faith is how we receive and appropriate what Jesus has accomplished. And remember what we've been talking about, because this whole chapter has been about the nature of faith. As one commentator put it this way, faith is not burying our heads in the sand or screwing ourselves up to believe what we know is not true or even whistling in the dark to keep our spirits up. On the contrary, faith is a reasoning trust. There can be no faith without thinking. Believe because it is true, not because it works. The only reason it works is because it's true. Friends, I challenge you, think through, think out the implications of the resurrection. Why not think it out? And if you think it's true, why not consider appropriating it, believing it, embracing it, living by resurrection hope? Let's pray. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. Father, we praise you for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to grow more and more in appropriating it. In Jesus' name, amen.